Thanks for tuning in to the Beer Mighty Things podcast, your place for education and happenings for all things craft beverage. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner. I hope you obtained some value from our show because, as you know, far better it is to Beer Mighty Things. Cheers. Welcome in to the Beer Mighty Things podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner. Today, we are speaking with a legend, a leader, a fun person to drink beers with. She's the former brewer at Southern Tier, Rivertown, head brewer of Rock Bottom Brewery, and now production manager at North Country Brewing in Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. Also a Pink Boots member, and uh, the list goes on, so please welcome in Meg Seastat. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Her, her name ends in a DT, and uh, you know, I thought it was important to make sure we knew that. Correct. That. I like it. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm not going to lie; I'm a little bit starstruck. Uh, you know, in the words of Ron Burgundy, you're that's very kind of you. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's very nice to hear. I don't always think of myself that way, but thank you. Well, you are. I remember bowing to you when I met you in uh, Pittsburgh not too long ago. Oh, that's funny. You grew up in a cold place, Western Pennsylvania. You end back up in Pittsburgh, cold place, um, or Western New York, I mean. And uh, yeah. tell me about growing up in Western New York. You had a lot of friends working at Southern Tier, and then what kind of happened from there? Yeah, so I mean, grew up in Western New York, coldest place I've ever lived, though I do love the snow, so it does make me miss it being down here now. Um, yeah, I grew up most of like my high school, early college years there. Well, my dad was in the Coast Guard, so I did move around a lot, but... Um, so yeah, being in Western New York, um, it's a very small town, very small town. So, you know, you're just finding ways to entertain yourself, but, uh, Southern tier being like our primary brewery in that area, I, d- I had friends who worked there, so they kind of started getting me on the beer train in different ways. So, uh, the first thing that I was introduced to was home brewing and I didn't do a lot of home brewing, but I'll, we'll go into that. But I was like introduced to going to a local uh, club and that was really cool because it first introduced me to um, kind of the culture and it it felt very welcoming. It was all about sharing information and helping one another and trying to problem solve, you know, a homebrew issue. And so it was really engrossing and just like really exciting. And it, it just like instantly was like, oh, this could be actually a career. So we did one homebrew or probably a couple after that, but um, one primary homebrew in that period. And it was just me and a couple friends dead of winter. And we wanted to make a coconut porter. So we're like, okay, cool. We got a kit. Uh, we got a real coconut because we felt like that was the only honest way to do it. I read that you had to kind of YouTube on how to even just open up that coconut. We did, but we still, it still failed. We were trying to use knives, like uh, cleavers, everything. It just wasn't happening. And then we just, it, it was just like a mess where we there was like skin all over the floor. It, it was kind of gross, but we got it open. That's the fun part of brewing. Yeah. And then we roasted it and put some cinnamon on it. And, but while we were brewing, we definitely weren't prepared. We basically just had a pot, but we had no real means to cool it down. Mm. And all of a sudden we're like, oh crap, how are we going to do this? But again, we lived in Western New York and it was snowing. So we went out to my uh, friend's back stairs and basically put a bunch of snow in a tote 
and just kept filling it up, kept filling it up, and then finally put our pot in there and just kept on going to get snow until it cooled down <laughs> so that we could put yeast in it and whatnot. So, so yeah, it, it ended up like after going into drinking it, it wasn't obviously like the best beer I feel like I've ever brewed. And we had some bottles explode. Luckily, no one got hurt, but it definitely was a good learning experience and kind of, I think, looking back on it, showcased really what brewing could be in like having a to problem solve, finding problems and figuring out what the problems are and finding solutions. It, it was just the whole gamut of it. And it was really cool, but it was still very collaborative and um, communal in a way. So I think that's why it was still one of those memorable moments that I still talk about and uh, even think on. And that beer had a, uh, had a unique name for it. What was that? It was Bruce. And it's not related to my now dog, Bruce. Uh, but we had this Are you idea. sure? <laughs> yeah. He's only six, and that was probably 10 years ago. I think you named him after the beer. <laughs> I wish. No, my ex was a huge Batman fan, so his name's actually Bruce Wayne. <laughs> gotcha. But the beers we wanted to name at that point, we were like, ooh, let's come up with a funny, weird thing where we'd use like, hi, my name is tags on the bottles and just give all of our beers real people names. And that's where Bruce came in. There you go. And then, uh, you know, Goose Island copied off you and uh, all the other breweries putting out their uh, beers that have names. (laughs) Right. Why did I not copyright that or patent that? (laughs) Treehouse, Julius, you know, I mean, all these guys are just copying off you. See, I told you you were a legend. You're a big deal. (laughs) Head of my time, I suppose. Absolutely. But yeah, and I only brewed a little bit when I was living in Oregon. Um, I, you know, I had a, one of my best friends, him and I would homebrew. Like we, pro- while I was there, we probably got two or three brews in. Um, but after that, no, I was just really focusing on the career aspect. And uh, yeah, so at, at the time when I got a job at Southern Tier, I was actually living in Pittsburgh very aimless early 20s I'm like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life like most early 20 year old and uh I kind of had thoughts to move back to Jamestown like I my nephew was just born and I really wanted to be around for that so I uh, a woman who worked there she was managing the packaging and operations and she just called me and said like, I know you're looking for a job and I know you want to be in this industry. Uh, I have a job. It's 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, eight to four, just over minimum wage, but you'll be gluing boxes and labeling bottles, but it's yours if you want it. And I'm like, sold. Uh, and I put in my notice that day and I moved back about a week and a half later into my parents and my old bedroom and just started at Southern Tier and literally my job was gluing boxes for the packaging line and labeling 22 ounce bottles one at a time because that's how they did it at that time and um, from there I really I, I just I knew that I needed to be around the brewers and wanted to be exposed to them and like kind of be able to give them my excitement so that they would be like oh yeah yeah, maybe we should think about promoting her. But um, at the time, I don't know if you're familiar with how the setup is now where they have the distillery. That was where we did all the packaging and um, like doing glue boxes and whatnot. So I was down there, but I knew I needed to be in the main building. And um, there was a job opening on the bottling line. It was temporary at first, but became permanent. And from there, I was just pulling bottles off the line in 
putting them through the taper. And so I did that for full time and then they eventually started growing. So they got their new bottling line while I was there. So kind of during this time of me just working on the bottling line and really not feeling like I was moving fast enough or wanting to do more, I had a really shitty ex-boyfriend at the time who would always, who was like, yeah, no, they're not going to promote you. He just kept telling me that. And so instead of being like, okay, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I kind of took that as a, well, if they're hiring people who have experience and went to school, that's what I need to do. So within three months, so I started in September and in January applied to Oregon State University for their food science uh, program that focused on fermentation science. And I was accepted a couple months later and pretty much a year to when I started, I moved out to Oregon. Um, but while I was out there, I was there for a semester, um, came home for winter break and asked Southern Tier if I could just do like an internship or help them out however I could because, I mean, you know, I was probably in my 20s at that point. So uh, I, I knew I still had bills. I had a car. You know, I still needed to make money. And they said yes, but while I was home, a job came available. And I mean, looking back now, I think my trajectory could have been totally different if I would have stayed, but I, I was very eager and I really wanted to get started on my career. So I accepted the position and moved back um, that following January and wow. started in the cellar. So I was on the brewing team, wasn't specifically brewing, but was doing everything else in the cellar, you know, uh, checking on the beers daily, filtering, you know, doing whatever I honestly needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, and you were, you were out in Oregon in about three, three months, right? And you were in that was the food science program. Is that what it was? Yeah, there, it was the overarching program is their food science department. And then they have programs for fermentation science that focus on beer, uh, wine or a general that would, you would probably get more background. I think it was like, you know, in baking and cheese and stuff like that. Did you love the weather out there where you're like, holy shit, this is such a change. I did actually love it a lot. <laughs> I feel like the whole time I was out there was a complete lifestyle change. I was walking everywhere. You know, I didn't care about an umbrella. I'm like, Oh, this rain is normal. So I just put a hood up, but it was it was an amazing experience because the landscape is beautiful. The people I met out there were amazing and are my closest friends. And I still try to visit every couple of years um, just because I, I know so many people out there and I love seeing the landscape. Um, I don't know. I, I still think about it. I, still, I don't think I got enough of a fill while I was out there. So that's why I keep going and visiting too. I agree. So that landscape, what do you, what do you think of when you think about that landscape? What do I think about? Yeah. When you're thinking about that landscape, mm. like, what is it that you like? Is it, is it green? What do you think of? It's, I just, there's nothing that I, I haven't seen any place in the country. And I mean, I'm sure I'm a little limited on where I've been, but like when I look at it and think about it, I'm like, I've never seen anything like that. So I, while I was there, I visit, I visited like Eugene and went on a hike through one of the forests. And that was like, tail end of summer early winter and so it was still pretty cold at that point and but it was just like so green so mossy like it just I feel like the forest was painting a picture and I it's the best way to describe it 
um, on subsequent trips, I went to the coast and saw the beaches and those were just gorgeous too. We went to see the haystack rocks too while I was there on that particular trip. And that was really gorgeous because it's just, I don't think they've messed with any of the landscape, you know, there's still so much preserved. Um, and I also have friends who now live in Bend and then going to Bend and being in like the high desert, like that was a different experience too. Um, just very dry weather because on that whole trip, when I went, I went to Vegas first and then went to Oregon. And so being in like a very like warm desert to the high, that was pretty cool. And, but still, you know, it was affecting my body differently. And, um, it was interesting. It was different. And it was really cool to see. Very cool. Yeah. I'm excited to get out there. Um, we realized, so my wife and I were going to go for our 10 year anniversary this year. And we realized that, you know, apparently Ireland, you know, is less costly than going to Oregon. So we booked that trip instead. Oh, nice. Yeah. Actually I was looking at flights cause I want to go to do like a hot spring for my birthday this year, if we're allowed to travel. So, um, I, I was looking at flights right now to Oregon or round trip are pretty cheap for like November, December. And I was like, I should jump on this now, but I don't want to, I'll wait and see what happens. I suppose with the whole pandemic. Yeah. And I'm sorry. When is, when is your birthday? Uh, December. Okay. So. I'm, in, I'm November. So. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Meg. So what was it like working for a brewery like Rock Bottom that was kind of a little more corporate, I feel, and, and multiple locations? What was that like? Um, I feel like all the good things are things that people don't really know about Rock Bottom, but the bad thing is, so I'll just kind of touch on both. Um, the good things were is like all the people I worked for directly, like all of my bosses were veteran brewers who were just always about helping and teaching and wanting the company to be. And there's also a really great network of brewers that I could contact at any given point to ask a question on. And that was, I really liked the feel of that. And even my location, you know, it still felt like a family, like our management team was awesome. And I had a lot of creative freedom, especially in the last probably two or three, because I was there five years. So it was probably about the last four years, we had a lot of freedom and creativity that we could really do whatever. Um, But the bad things were, I think, like, come along more with how we're perceived by our consumers, you know, with the way the industry has changed. Um, you know, like breweries that have chains and have multiple locations like rock bottom, you know, were great when I was first getting into the industry 10 years ago, that became someone's local watering hole. But as the industry grew and changed, um, the focus came on craft and wanting to support just the local guy. And, you know, so we were never looked at like a local brewery, even though, you know, everything I did was just done on site, you know, it's just, we had a corporation paying all the bills. And so I do under, I do recognize the difference, but at the same time, I think it affected me and like my mental state a bit wanting to do so much in the industry, but feeling like I, whatever I did, no one really cared about it. And I'm sure there's probably more psychology to that, but uh, I, I wanted people to look and actually judge my products based on what the products were, not what, the company who's on the label is, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Kind of, it's, it's kind of so big. You almost feel like you become like a number versus an individual. 
Yeah, but it, and it wasn't it wasn't like within the corporation, but it was like within the market and within mm. our consumers and stuff. You know, we had Voodoo and uh, Brew Gentleman right there, and then eventually Enix. And so I would have friends posting about being there, but I would never, they would never contact me being like, Oh, I stopped in for a pint Mm. and I tried and like, give me good feedback. Cause I'm not one to ever want anyone to just like blow smoke up my ass. I I want honest, good feedback so that I can be better as a brewer and better in this industry. And I I just never was able to get that. Mm. That's interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So you've worked for a number of breweries, uh, obviously in the cellar, and then you were in the uh, the brewer, you know, head brewer position. And, um, you know, Bob and Jody McCafferty are amazing people up in North Country, um, up in Slippery Rock. So you are now a production manager. You know, what's it like working for them as well as how has your job changed from brewer to production manager? Uh, I mean, Bob and Jody are some of my favorite people. I, I see Bob a lot more than I do Jody. She s- tends to like be at the restaurants a little bit more. Um, but Bob is very open. He's like open to hearing what I have to say, hearing my critiques, what I need. Um, he's also given me a lot of freedom to enact the expertise that I have to help make the company better. And I think if there was a lot more fight there, you know, it would be a totally different environment, but it's not. I have a really great relationship and um, my team is amazing and we have really great dynamic here. It's probably one of the best groups I've worked for in my entire career, which is weird to say at this point, 10 years later. (laughs) But um, going from being a head brewer to production manager, I, I... the downside of where making this change, but there's also plenty of goods. So I don't want to like downplay that is that I was hired with the intention to do some brewing, but we just, you know, with how we operate and how much we do here, um, you know, that's just, that kind of got off the table a little bit. And so my role right now primarily focuses on making sure our schedule is in place and, um, looking at what sales are doing so that I can schedule accordingly. So I have a head brewer who works um, under me, who basically does all the ordering for the materials to make the beer. I just kind of set up what we're actually doing. And this year I had a really big impact on what our lineup was. You know, one of the things I acknowledged last year was some of the beers, you know, though they were very, very fun and they were really good products, they didn't totally line up with what I felt North Country was. So I was able to look at it like, who are we as a company and create beers that aligned with that. Hmm. So for example, uh, you know, we really um, tend to touch on more outdoors type people and activities. And so I wanted to really um, kind of create beers that would make people connect from that side of things, not just trying to connect with everyone. Um, So we have a beer that we actually are brewing today that's called Commuter. So, you know, to try to hit on like some of the bicyclists and give them a beer that they might be like, Ooh, I'm a commuter. Um, we have our Creek and our trail series. Um, so that really wanting to have people who connect with the trails that we choose and the creeks that we choose. Um, I'm trying to think of, we have another beer coming out in the fall called Traverse, which is related to, uh, climbing. Um, and, and so like that, I don't want to go through our whole list right now, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so we're doing stuff like that. 
That's great because, you know, obviously you want to tie into your uh, clientele and, you know, that's branding, that's niche, that's memorable for those folks and it's relatable. So kudos to you for, for figuring that out. Was that not something that, you know, were there beard names not kind of outdoorsy or? Um, we had some, like the best example that I'm thinking right off the top of my head, we have a beer called Ugg Life. It was a fun pub beer that we did. The beer is great, but I, I don't, I didn't personally think like when I was trying to get my mind into who our consumers were, I didn't really see that relate. And honestly, I, I pulled it. I'm a huge fan of the Tim Ferriss podcast. But one of the episodes he talked about was our a thousand true fans. And I think with where we are, yep. um, I really wanted to really focus on those people. I wanted to give, I don't really care about every single consumer. I just wanted to focus on the people who are really going to keep supporting us no matter what we do. And I think that focus was really cool to see. And that I never thought in my career I would necessarily do that specific thing. Um, but it, it's kind of cool to be able to work on that and think of more of the business end. And that's, I think, more of what my role is here too, is how can I create success in our brewery um, through looking at those little things and finding our consumers and making sure they're our main focus. That's, that's well done. I love Tim Ferriss as well. Um, I don't know if he said it, but he he'll elaborate on it once in a while of, you know, if you're going to, you know, again, focusing on a niche and a thousand true fans, he will bring up the quote about, you know, if there are two rabbits, if you're chasing two rabbits or three rabbits, they're all going to get away. But if you Mm -hmm. focus on one rabbit on one niche, that's, that's how you really grow and stand out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Meg, what is it about uh, mixed culture slash spontaneous beers that excite you? I started really thinking about these types of beers probably like two or three years ago because what I love about them is that they, you know, you have to have a really good process to start no matter what. So once you're feeling like you're past like getting a good foundation of brewing skills, you know, I feel like spontaneous beer takes it to the next level because you kind of have to let go of the reins a little bit and then use additional skills, i.e. your palate to create, then create. So I really was attracted to the creativity that almost seemed above like just normal brewing. And I like that creation aspect and, you know, being able to try things and then blend them together to create something totally new was really fascinating to me. Um, I was only able to really start touching on working on it at the end of my time at rock bottom. I was doing like really small scale, like I was bringing my homebrew equipment in and just doing very small batches of spontaneous beer. Um, so I don't, totally don't know where they're at right now. Cause I kind of had to leave them behind, but I definitely, you know, it was really cool to watch the progression and watch the pellicle develop and, um, really see what these beers could do. Um, it's something I would love to bring to North country eventually, but I, I don't think we're there just yet. Um, but it, it, yeah, that, that's really why I was so interested and why I'm still interested in those products. Very cool. Fresh, fresh fest is, um, a festival. Was that in Pittsburgh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 2019. And you had brewed a grisette for that. And, you know, I've seen Sly Fox do a grisette and it's delicious. And, but I don't see that beer too often. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked up the meaning and I guess it is kind of in the Saison category and Saison mm-hmm. translates to season. And mm-hmm. these beers were originally brewed for seasonal farm workers. 
um, where the saisons were brewed for the farm workers, the grisettes were really brewed for the workers in the local mines. Why is this style so unique and complex? I, I think this kind of touches on what we were just talking about with like spontaneous beer. I mean, if we're talking about Saison in general, I'm always really attracted to that because I love the history and that it wasn't a style that was just necessarily created and designed later in, it was very historical. And so I always like that even now, a lot of the Saisons that are brewed back in Germany and Belgium, that uh, they're still like brewed in very small scale and they're meant for just a purpose. And so I think that's what always attracted me to that. And when I was designing this beer uh, with Tamara, who was from Sister Friend. Which is a nonprofit, right? Yeah, it's a nonprofit that supports um, women's feminine hygiene health um, to under, uh, with underprivileged people. And it's, it's an amazing organization. Definitely would suggest anyone to check them out and help them out. Um, but she said she really liked wheat beer. So I, I'm, I have an affinity for more sessionable products. And when she said she wanted to do some sort of wheat beer, I, I thought of the grisette because I figured, you know, we're in the summer. It's going to be very sessionable. It's going to be very easy to drink. And, you know, not a lot of people are brewing them because it's not necessarily a sexy style. And um, I mean, even the Saison category in general, like it definitely has a uh, consumer. Um, so I figured that'd be really cool. And we worked with the butterfly pea flower because her color scheme is purple and pink. And I had always wanted to work with that, that um, ingredient and was able to do that with her. And I thought it was really cool. It was, turned out to be a beautiful beer and it definitely different and stood out. And what I love about what Fresh Fest does is, you know, being able to connect with someone that I may have not connected with before. But what I love to do on like, from my standpoint is do whatever I can to make a really interesting, unique beer that would stand out at the festival so that there would be more focus on the person I'm working with. So, um, so that's what I, I, I did it both years that I have collaborated. Even the first year, you know, I felt like we went all out. I, we did brute IPAs were pretty popular during the first one. So the woman I worked with, um, created a really beautiful label for us. But when I was actually, uh, serving it, <laughs> I had to rig up, uh, this whole thing because, uh, the CO2 on the carbonation level on was so high that I was like, okay, I definitely have to do something here. So I used a pigtail, but the way I had to set it up is I had to basically connect a Zwickle, which is a sample port typically on a fermenter or a bright tank. I had to connect that to the keg somehow. And I was able to do that, got that done and then put the sample or the pigtail on it so that I could just try to like condense the co2 as much as possible to try to not get all the foam coming out and it was really fun it was interesting and i think like, like our setup of the festival got her a lot of attention she sold some stuff and that was awesome too you're like uh, macgyver in the in the brew house oh yeah but again that's what brewing is it's all about finding a problem and solving it and being creative and that was something i saw very early on when i was at southern tier is well i don't have all the pieces i have so how do i rig this up so it works and just being really creative. So that's, I think, very satisfying as a brewer. Absolutely. We mentioned the lower ABV there on the grisette. What are some other characteristics of it? And I'm assuming that was the only grisette at the Fresh Fest. 
Yeah, I don't recall seeing anything else, but lower ABV, it, it's definitely not necessarily, it's a very balanced beer. So when I think of balance, I think of something that might be a little more malt forward, but it definitely had a prominent hop character to it, but it was still very, um, it wasn't overly bitter like an IPA would, might come off. So I don't want it to be there. So I guess as far as that palate could be related to maybe a Czech, uh, Czech lager, so it, or not Czech, excuse me, um, a German lager so that it had a little bit of a hop presence, but mm -hmm. it still was very nuanced and balanced and very drinkable at the festival. So yeah, I wasn't familiar with the butterfly pea flower until I read that article there. Is that from like a mm -hmm. butterfly bush? Um, I'm not totally sure. I feel like it has, I'm not totally, it's the tea. I'm not really sure if it comes in a bush or if it's, it has to be something like that, but I didn't do too much background on that. Yeah. Tell me about your heavy metal playlists when you're brewing. Ooh. So, <laughs> I mean, when I'm brewing, I'm listening to all sorts of stuff. It could be pop music, it could be metal. But I mean, if I'm talking about metal, um, I, punk usually goes in there too. When it comes to metal, I'm a lot more attracted to like thrash that was a little more like hardcore, something that's a little bit faster and yeah. has more of a drive. Um, something, a band that came out with an album last year that I just, I definitely would recommend anyone who likes that type of thing is Hell Ripper. Um, it's just like a four song EP, one dude who does pretty much the whole thing. Um, and that was, that's a really exciting stuff when it comes to punk. I mean, I'm also into like Scott. So I listen to a lot of streetlight manifesto I'm trying to look at some of my lists because I have a terrible memory. Venom prison, uh, Helmsley and these, those two bands both have like some female participants. So it's kind of really cool. And I really like that a lot. I mean, Pig Destroyer is always one of my go-tos. Uh, Candy is actually an interesting one. Like some of their art's pretty racy and it's it's really fun, really fun music. Um, but I definitely recommend Candy to anyone. Hmm. Meg, do you think that when you are playing heavy metal or fast music while brewing, it actually speeds up the boil? <laughs> I feel like your face at first was like, that is a very serious question. <laughs> Meg, this is a very, very, very serious podcast. Meg, take me seriously. Um, no, I don't think it speeds up the boil. I think there's other factors to that. <laughs> like science? Makes me, it makes me run around a lot more, so I get stuff done. One you weigh the hops faster? Yeah, yeah. I just like, just dump the whole bag out. You're, sh you're shoveling out the spent grain a lot quicker? Let's go. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things when I was at rock bottom, I would primarily, if I was ever brewing, I would, and we were doing a double, I would try to be the first one in cause I like working early and for like, usually at a, it was at a restaurant, obviously. So the first like hour or two, no one's in the building and I would just like blast the music. But what kept happening was when someone did come in, they would just slowly open the door and try not to scare me. But Without a doubt, I would always be like, ah! <laughs> and be freaked out. And it was, yeah, easily scared, but it's still, it was still fun. There's something about having that morning to yourself with blasting music. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's incredible. I, my second job, my first job when I was 16 was Rita's Italian Ice and it was awesome. Oh, nice. My second job, I worked at Staples for a long time and I, uh, I would do the, like the Saturday 6 a.m. shift, like 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. Mm. And it's really, you know, we didn't open until 10. So I was, you know, we had the Bose stereo system and the electronics guy and, and myself, you know, kind of in the furniture and the office supplies. Like we'd just be stocking shelves, blasting music, 
just us two for four hours. And I mean, that's such an incredible outlet, such a great way to start the day. Now I have a question. What is stocky shelf music? <laughs> oh man. Um, I think at that time, probably some, some hip hop, actually, you know what the guy I used to stock with loved, um, incubus. So a lot of the early oh. incubus. Okay. Um, he actually got me pretty, pretty far into incubus. Um, taught me a lot, but yeah, I mean, it was, I don't know, nineties, nineties hip hop. Um, and 90s alternative and, and some of that stuff. Yeah. Shelf stocky music. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Sweet. You started the Brutal Beer Fest. Uh, first beer and heavy mm-hmm. metal festival. Tell me about that. Yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, no, it, I think I, it kind of touches on like sensitive subjects. But um, at the time, I finally was at a point where I like wasn't working two jobs because the beer industry really doesn't pay that well. So um I was finally at a like good position where I was like okay well we can do this without me working a second job and I think I just got bored and it was an idea that me and my ex uh talked about for a while and I was really into it I love the idea and what really the idea sparked because like the way he would talk about metal to his friends was like the same type of passion that I would talk about beer with other people. So that was like the first kind of thought about it. And, you know, we knew the idea could work because we saw three Floyds, we knew what they were doing. And so I was like, screw it, let's do this. Let's try to make this happen. And that was probably the the quickest put together one that we did. Cause I think we started talking about it probably early spring and it was in November that same year. So it's a lot of planning, a lot of planning and a lot of coordinating, but we knew we wanted to have bands and breweries work together to create something unique for the guests and also be able to flex the creativity that a lot of collaborations can, um, can offer. But in, and I thought in this instance that it was a little bit more creative because you get to work with a band who's just innately creative. And, um, so it's really cool. So, yeah. So then we kept doing it. Our team grew a little bit. We brought on like two or three more people the following year just to help volunteer and coordinate. And the second year was pretty big. We got Baroness and that was really cool. We got, we moved the venue to be bigger, um, used two stages and it was pretty incredible in our third year, which was the last year that we did it was probably the best year. Um, each year, I think we evaluated like what worked, what didn't work. Yeah. You know, the first year trying to do a Kickstarter just wasn't for us and um, acknowledge that ticketing was a huge thing. And like the way our consumers like looked at the festival, they definitely were focused more on the music versus the beer. Whereas I think I first as a brewer and a metal fan was like, no, this is two festivals in one. So the value is much higher, but I knew that our consumers wanted a, um, a value. They wanted to know that their money was going to go a long way. And that came down to our lineup. And I think we finally hit it on the nail in that third year where we had, 10 bands, six of them were touring bands, Dying Fetus headlined, but they came with a package too. So we were basically able to, between the second and third year, use the same band budget, but get more out of it in the third year. And, you know, people got the nostalgia with Through the Eyes of the Dead, which had probably one of the best crowds um, Mm -hmm. during the day. Um, We went after having more breweries that were not from Pittsburgh because we also said, said that like okay there is a small portion of our consumers that 
definitely want really good craft beer. So, you know, we got KCBC, we got a couple breweries from nice. Boston. Um, we invited more breweries from Erie down and it was really cool. It, it, you know, we, we got to do more and it, we found that balance. And, um, but shortly after that is pretty much when I got um, divorced from my ex. And so I think with the marriage, the festival went with it because um, it was part what I realized about the festival was that it was kind of a coping mechanism for myself. Um, I definitely was very depressed for a very long time. And instead of trying to work through the problems, I just worked more. You, cre- you created a, dis- a distraction to take your mind off it. Exactly. And the outlet was only one day a year. You know, I would feel for a week after brutal and then would just be miserable again. And so I realized other issues, um, literally a day after our first event, there is a large metal magazine called decibel that announced that they were doing the same thing. And it was like literally the day after and it crushed Hmm. me. And it was just like, wow. Um, and like, why couldn't this be a coordinated thing? Cause I knew they were aware of that we were doing it. Exactly. And yeah, so we dealt with some of those type of things for all three years. And I think part of it was the name was derived from one of their articles, which was called brutal truth. And I felt like it was a little bit of a naive thing on my behalf. Like if I would have kind of put two and two together, obviously hindsight's 2020, I would have gone away from the name. So at this point, the festival is dissolved, the business is dissolved and it's done and over with. But I mean, I still think the whole idea can persist, but if I were ever to do it again, it would probably be, probably be in coordination with a brewery and I would definitely change the name. Um, but it, it, I don't know. I made a lot of friends through it. I I learned a lot more about the music industry through it. Um, definitely a lot of learning and growth throughout that whole time. And it was really cool. Got to work on marketing skills because it was just me and three other people. Yeah. You gotta get creative. Yeah. It was interesting. It was an interesting time, but uh, I am kind of happy right at this point that it is a little bit behind me and that doors are open again or, or potential doors are open again to do something different. You mentioned in that third year, it was your best year. Um, what's the turnout yeah. there? What, you know, how many breweries, how, we, how many attendees? We tried to cap certain things so that we didn't overwhelm the day. And also an eight hour day is very long for people. So we capped the breweries right around 30 to 35 and the bands we wanted to keep no more than 10. So, and as far as our guest list, it was the highest. We almost sold out. We were very close to selling out. I think our sellout point was like six or six fifty, and we were right in the mid five hundreds. Wow. Um, so that was pretty good. You know, we have for space wise, we had to be very creative, but we also had to account for the tables involved in all the band equipment and whatnot. So um, we definitely cut our, the gout, the guest count significantly. But in the third year too, we uh, also decided to create almost like this alliance so that we, it was kind of a business move so that we could generate some funds without finding as many sponsors so that, you know, so basically right. pre-sold tickets through this alliance gave people a hoodie, which I'm actually wearing my hoodie right now. Nice. It says drinking arm on the arm. Does it say it on the other side? Because I'm lefty. No, it doesn't. We didn't think about that because one of our coordinators was left-handed and that was pretty fun. But yeah, but we also like did some events leading up to Brutal with this alliance. Um, And so it was kind of like a reward program, but also helped us 
find those people who really wanted to support us. Very cool. Great experience. How many tattoos do you have? Oh my gosh. That's, I haven't counted in a long time because I just did my, my back is fully outlined now. Okay. It's a lot of time in a chair. It is. That one was actually my outline only took about three or four hours. I, I, since I moved to Pittsburgh, I've been going to the same guy, Jason McGarry. He works for Three Rivers, Rivers Tattoo in Millvale. And he's awesome. He did my neck. He did my chest. Yeah. Um, all the ones on my lower arm, which my favorite tattoo that I got in like the last year was my boyfriend and I, we went to New York City to uh, to, to a wedding and I happened to purchase from Instagram these toilet seats that had serial killers painted on them. And <laughs> the, the woman I bought them from, it was like this serial killer murderabilia. Like she has a lot of memorabilia from like, she has letters, art, et cetera, et cetera. So she was like, well, if you're ever in New York City, you should stop through. And the wedding was literally like a month or two away. So I was like, hold the toilets. We're going to come. And we're going to just pick them up and we'll check out what you have. So we spent, I think, like five or six hours with this couple uh, looking at art from like Charles Manson and uh, John Wayne Gacy, et cetera, like a bunch of people. Some things you just don't think about, you know? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Do you have, any, uh, you have any nicknames? I feel like you should have a nickname. Um, so I don't really have any that people consistently call me when I was younger. I had this friend who would call me punk rock Meg. Cause I was just like punk rock and didn't give a fuck. Uh, and then now I think people, some randomly call me Megatron. My boyfriend's brother calls me Megatron. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much the extent of it. <laughs> what will you be drinking this weekend? Hmm. Probably shameful to say, uh, my boyfriend just got a kegerator like two weeks ago. And yesterday, he, he likes drinking a lot of light stuff, so we picked up a half barrel because it was on sale of Yangling, which is surprising. But on top of that, I'm actually kind of uh, – I'm doing this workout program right now, so I'll probably actually be drinking more tequila versus beer right. this weekend. I learned, I learned that tequila – right, alcohol is a depressant, but tequila is a stimulant. Is that? Is that true? I did not know mm-hmm. that. The agave, the agave plant is a stimulant. Well, then I definitely take the stimulant and it'll keep me wanting to work out all week. <laughs> there you go. Drink, yeah. drink, you know, five ounces of tequila and then work out. You'll have plenty of energy. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a long time and talking about the beer that we got, um, having giggling on draft right now, I, I think for a while I was very like, no, I don't want to have this like big breweries beer on. And then they had some like shifty political stuff happening. But um, what I love about what they're doing and I feel a lot more, I feel a lot better about their company is the daughters are taking over and they're supporting yep. pink boots tenfold. And I really respect what they're doing to give back and helping yeah. a lot of women get into this industry. So yep. I was Absolutely. like, yes, we can buy a half barrel of gangling. That's fine. Nice. Now, Wendy's very sweet. Um, I haven't met his other daughters, but uh, yeah, Wendy's great. And yeah, they're donating a lot of money and they're, they're showing their support as they should. Yeah. You know, um, and as they can. So yeah, kudos to them. And I always, stress the fact that it's like, yeah, okay, it's yingling and, and we've had it forever. But there's mm-hmm. so many people who haven't had yingling still. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like with any of these bigger breweries to make, you know, a lager or a pilsner consistently for 50 years, a hundred years, mm-hmm. and it'd be the same every time. I mean, you know, you gotta, you gotta give them props for that. 
Oh yeah. 110%. Yeah. I think if you think about the process and having to make sure everything's consistent every time, because the people who are going to drink it are going to drink it all the time. And they're the ones who are going to see the nuances when something tastes bad, if it gets oxidized, um, if something else happens. Um, so yeah, no. And I, and I do love and appreciate how much loggers are kind of coming back into the fold in the beer industry right now. Um, seeing breweries that are exclusively brewing lagers be successful makes me really happy because there's so much nuance and it's something else for our consumers to learn. Like I think of Notch up in Salem, Massachusetts, like that, I feel like I learn something every time they post something about a new beer and I'm like, whoa, that's really cool. Cause they do focus a lot of historical styles. And I think they're kind of being one of the pioneers in like the lager brewing scene. Nice. I'll have to check them out. I've, I've mm-hmm. heard of them, but I haven't paid attention and I would be curious to see, you know, how they're educating. Maybe I'll reach out to them and have them on here. Yeah, it'd be cool. Brienne is their, one of their, and she's their head brewer and she also started the Boston Pink Foods chapter and she's badass. Well, then we got to get her on because but the owners. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now brewing <laughs> women's week is becoming, I think two weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And that's yeah. a beautiful thing. Again, you saw, so for all of those out there who can't see the podcast because it's audio only, um, mid podcast, my daughter just walked down and put on a top hat on my head. So I'm wearing a completely <laughs> different hat than I started this podcast with. Yeah. I can see myself <laughs> in the reflection and it's freaking hilarious. I feel like, uh, some character from like a vaudeville movie. You are, you definitely look like a, you're about to go rob a bank. I got my mask. Yeah. North country. Are you guys doing? delivery or takeout now? Uh, yeah. So we're doing, um, the way we have it set up, both of our restaurants just opened back up this week to do uh, takeout. Um, we are doing delivery though. I'm not as privy on all the details. Definitely can find it online. Um, and then we are doing takeout of beer only at our production location, which is where I work out of. And uh, we are still distributing to the city, um, which is, also why I'm still working, which is great. And we're really happy. People are still supporting us. Um, one thing luckily that we did, and I'm really stoked that we're doing it to try to help and give back is we did this cream ale called for the people and we're donating, uh, 50% of the proceeds from that back to hospitality workers. And we're still accepting applications and basically we're going to sit down look at them and give it, give the money out in waves. So I'm really excited to start doing that. That's terrific. Thank you so much for doing those things. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, where can we find your beer? Uh, online, on social media, you? Oh my gosh. That is definitely a question. <laughs> um, you can always follow us on North Country Brewing on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then we, our distributor for Pittsburgh is Vicini. So anywhere they distribute, it's all over. I mean, I live in Bloomfield. So um, I, I just walk down to Liberty Beer and I pick up some beer. Um, and we definitely are there. Uh, and then we have distributors up, uh, Northwest and over near state college too. So we're, we're definitely spreading out in the state. Nice. And, uh, I think we can find you guys at northcountrybrewpub.com. Is that right? Yeah, I think that can work. Yeah. Does Megatron have her own like Instagram handle? She does. It's called, it's, uh, kill me until I die from it. Say that again. Kill me until I die from it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, it was this concept I have about, and it's kind of related to the beer industry where, um, 
not to go off too topic or go off topic too much. Um, you know, the industry is really interesting in that, like, I think a lot of people are expected to like give a lot more than they get. And I, I think it's taken me a long time to realize that, you know, we're still all people and, you know, we need to find our own boundaries. And so that's kind of where the whole idea kind of came from, um, of like just giving until like, you just can't give anymore. And, um, yeah, if that made sense. Hopefully <laughs> we'll, we'll ask the audience. I think so. Okay. Hey, well, I appreciate your time. Thanks for being you. You are a powerful, kick-ass, well-respected, damn good brewer. Um, you have a fantastic business mind. I'm glad we ha- had some of this chat today. And uh, thanks for being a part of Women's Week and potentially Women's Two Weeks. And, uh, you know, you're truly out there daring mighty things, pushing the boundaries, and uh, appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. You're very welcome. All right, that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you find this valuable. Please follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple. And while you're at Apple, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating. It helps us get noticed among the craft beverage community there. Thank you. Cheers and beer. Mighty things.